Yesterday, uh, at lunchtime, uh, a good friend came to just visit and at some point in the, she was a friend of all, a number of us here, and uh, at a certain point in the, in the meal she just mentioned that she had a letter that her husband had written in the time of his dying quite some years ago, to myself and my wife, that he'd never finished and had never been posted. And she gave it to me. And I received this letter from from Lloyd, this man who was a a dear friend and someone I regard as a remarkable remarkable benefactor for myself and and I know to have been such for many people. And just uh, kind of receiving something that was written by someone who who was now, I think, maybe 12, 13 years since he died. That feeling of something coming from that place touched me very deeply. And so I thought this evening I would speak about the, the theme, the territory of contemplating death, what that means for us in practice. It's one of the primary areas of reflection, one of the primary areas we are invited to give attention to. And it's something that the Buddha spoke of regularly, invited us to consider. In his own journey, it was the encounter with the four heavenly messengers, of uh, one of whom was a dead person, that inspired the Buddha to leave his comfortable life in the home and palace or at least a mansion of his of his father and to seek for that which he was most interested in and i think when we bring this topic to mind if we turn our attention to it it gives us a really important opportunity to reflect upon our own motivation our own intention what is it that really moves us in our life and what is it that we really moved by here on the retreat. It's so common, it seems, and so easy in our world for the reality of this dimension of existence that we call death to be tidied up, to be covered, to be sort of kept safely in the periphery or the background of our experience, and our culture is quite good at doing that. And in the Dharma teachings, there's an an invitation and encouragement to not put it to the periphery, to actually place this reflection, this contemplation, quite close to the center. We had the uh, opportunity some years ago at Guy House to receive an offering from um, from a medical student of a skeleton, an actual human skeleton that could be a displayed, we could say, at Guy House as a reminder, as a reflection. Um, and it's something that one might commonly find in uh, the monasteries in Asia and Thailand. Uh, sometimes the nuns or the monks would say, you know, when I die, just uh, you know, park my bones over here so people can have a look. <laughs> you know, let's keep it real. Um, and it was interesting how much resistance, how much concern there was amongst certain members of the organisation 
mostly the teachers were pretty keen, but the, uh, some of the other folk uh, really thought this is going to upset people, this is going to distress people, this is going to scare people away. And actually, it's interesting, because that's kind of how we think this territory might affect us. And this is how our world acts, and as I say, tries to kind of tidy it up, keep it clean, make it look sort of a little clinical often. And yet, there's something really powerful about turning our attention to the reality of death. And I'm sure, as all or certainly most of you will know, it's something that just appears in our lives when it does, in different ways. I remember a a good friend from my travels in India who, age 30, is a wife and young child, just talking with a friend, another friend of ours, mutual friend, just fainted and died from perfect health in the midst of his life and the vitality of it all to just dead. It was a blood vessel in his brain, just burst. And within moments his brain was compressed and then he was unconscious and within minutes he was dead. Nothing to be done. Leaving behind his little daughter, his loving wife, and no chance to say goodbye. There's a profound vulnerability in this human condition. The fact of our existence is subject to this. The soft human body. We talk about aging, decay, death, as you know, within the realm of dukkha, but actually really just pausing a little when we do that. Just pausing with the sense of the inevitability, the unstoppability, and the unpredictability of what that represents for us. There's this wonderful story from the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian spiritual classic teaching story, um, and the conversation between Krishna and Arjuna. Arjuna's kind of the hero, and Krishna being a deity in that uh, world, uh, representing wisdom. And Arjuna asks Krishna, who's actually his charioteer at this point, and um, he says, with your remarkable vision, your vast vision of the universe, what's the greatest miracle that you see? And Krishna responds, he says, the greatest miracle I see in in this world, in this universe, is that although people see others dying all around them, they do not believe it will happen to themselves. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because at some level we know, but we don't really necessarily let that in fully. And so one of the things that the Buddha invited and encouraged is that we contemplate it, that we turn our attention directly to this. He spoke of this practice as maranasati, the (laughs) contemplation, the giving attention to, the reflecting on and the remembering of the fact of our death and encouraged us or encouraged the practitioners of his time to sit in the places where bodies, as they were at that time in India, were discarded and allowed to decompose and to contemplate a dead body, a rotting body, a body that's just the skeleton or the dismembered bones or the piles of dust that those bones become. And at every stage of that process to just say, just to reflect, I will not escape this, this body 
We'll come to that. And it sounds a bit like it might be a bit depressing or macabre or kind of dark, you know, sort of like, why would one want to do that? And yet, interestingly, it isn't something that has that effect. If we understand the potency of this reflection, this, this process, and it has some incredibly beneficial offerings to give us to contemplate in this way. There's a gravestone in a cemetery in, in Norfolk in, in England which is inscribed with the following epitaph and it, it's, I find it inspiring and remarkable as a, a last words or last offering. It says, Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. How wonderful. How amazing. Remember, friend, when you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And so turning to this reflection, this contemplation, the sense of, okay, this is this body, this being, this framework of existence that we are inhabiting, that we are living in and with, with and through, is of the nature to age, to sicken, to die. We know this intellectually. No one here is going to deny that as a, as a piece of information. But knowing it really in our heart is something else. As the French philosopher Gaillou once said, he said, if we know but do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. If we don't act according to what we know, then we don't really, that knowledge has not penetrated fully, deeply into our heart. And so we have to look at our life sometimes, I think, and it's important as a practice to come back to this now and then, perhaps regularly. To see what does that mean for my existence? The fact that it is not forever. If I really take that to heart, what we see is that, in fact, it means at one level, very immediately, to not take it for granted. To see, wow, how amazing that we're here, knowing that we're not here forever. And how, how precious it is that we're here. It's not something actually that leads to a sense of gloominess. I don't find, or sort of a sense of, kind of, oh, that's a bit depressing, I don't want to think about that. It actually brings a sense of, wow, how amazing. How amazing. And how precious it is that we're here. How amazingly precious. Not less precious, in fact, more so. Because of its transiency, its temporiness, its inevitable coming to an end. I don't think we could know the preciousness of our life fully and deeply if it wasn't for the fact that we don't get to have it forever. And in fact, we don't necessarily even get to have it for that long, because we don't quite know how long we're going to get to have it. We cannot take it for granted. And so there's a way in which we're asked to use it well. And that's really, I think, what the Buddha's invitation and encouragement to this reflection is about. To use it well. To have this opportunity to hear, to practice the Dharma. This is something precious and fortunate. Not guaranteed. Rare, in fact. And yet, 
we might kind of just kind of the number of people, and I'll include myself, who've reported, oh, we're coming towards the end of a retreat. We start thinking about the next retreat. Oh, it was good. Yeah, I'll do another one. Or even thinking about what's going to happen when we go home. And we don't know, actually, for sure, that any of those things of the future will happen. For many different reasons, of course, it might be that something else happens. But one of the reasons is that the potentiality, the possibility of death intersects our trajectory and just brings it to an end. So that perhaps brings some sense of urgency, some sense of, okay, well, gosh, maybe today, not just is it in a kind of an interesting idea sort of way, but maybe it will be it. Maybe today is the day. We don't know. It happens every day to people who didn't expect today to be the day. It really does. And how would I live if I knew that to be true? This is really one of the key elements of it. If I really took that on, how would I live? There's a beautiful um, piece on this by uh, Don Juan, who is the uh, the teacher of Carlos Castaneda in a series of books that some of you may be familiar with from, I guess, quite long ago now. But he speaks about death. He says, The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and that you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside of its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to women and men who live their lives as if death will never touch them. Sometimes when it feels like things are really difficult, and they certainly can be in life at times, just getting a sense that, okay, yeah, but life continues. We kind of know that at some level. We're just, oh yeah, actually... A lot of the fear or the stress that sometimes arises because we've almost forgotten that. We've imagined that this will be our end, our annihilation, this difficult, complicated, painful, confusing situation. But so far, that's not the case. And something, I love that phrase, that sense of the, the, the accursed pettiness of how sometimes we live our lives. Me too, I'm not putting myself outside this. But when we don't remember this, sometimes the things we get so upset about and concerned about, they're just not what's really important. And we know that, we know that, but we forget. We forget when, you know, something's a little irritating, when the conditions aren't just quite right, you know, it's a little too hot or too cold or too noisy or whatever. Someone else doesn't do things quite the way I'd like them done, even though I know my way's better. And it is, but... But why get involved with that, really? Why? Particularly with people we care about. Why make that the basis of our interaction? Sometimes just that stopping and realizing, wow, we're here for now, but not forever. That just brings a freshness to the sense of how I want to live my life. And I think it really helps us to, to also just feel a sense of, of warmth, of openness with each other. There was a, um, a report I uh, 
I heard from a experimental kind of workshop that they ran at a um, a prison in Texas with the death row inmates. And death row inmates are generally kept in solitary confinement, which for some of them involves an incredible amount of time in isolation. And part of the reason for that is because they're some of them at least um, quite sort of aggressive or violent people who have done things that have been quite horrific. Of course, some of them may not be because of the tragedy of... Uh, the uh, the penal system that doesn't actually make accurate decisions about what happened on a regular bunch of occasions. But anyway, here, not really meaning to pick that up too much, but can't <laughs> help mentioning it with the story. Um, this bunch of people, they, they did an experiment with the, with the death row inmates, putting them together, giving them some common tasks which they could do together that were somewhat practical and useful, but not too complicated or difficult. And they were monitoring and... Um, had some people around to make sure things were okay. And what they discovered and noticed and were fascinated and surprised by was that these tough, hard-bitten characters, for the most part, as I said, seemed to be treating each other with a considerable degree of respect and kindness and friendliness. And they asked some of them, what's happening here? This is really different than what we see in a lot of prison environments. And the response that came in different ways and forms was essentially, you know, we're on death row. We all know that each of us is going to die. We know that. And maybe quite soon. Something remarkable about the power of that knowledge. Of course, tragic and horrific that it has to be found in those circumstances. But sometimes it's like this, it seems. The Buddha himself said similarly to his uh, followers at times when sometimes arguments would break out amongst them and they would get into all sorts of uh, difficulty and strife. Um, we'd like to think, of course, that the followers of the Buddha were peaceful, harmonious and always filled with loving kindness. But apparently it wasn't always so. And the, the phrase that comes sometimes you hear it and I... I feel it. It's sort of they talk about you know stabbing each other with verbal daggers. You kind of go, ooh, that, you know that hurts. You have a sense of that. Um, that's reported at least. This is sometimes what goes on. And one time, one time the Buddha, you know, he turns and he says, "Knowing you will die, how can you quarrel? Knowing you will die, how can we be cruel, or harsh, or even just unkind and insensitive to each other?" It's like we've lost that remembrance and sometimes bringing it back and just remembering, oh, this person who I'm dealing with, and even if they're difficult, even if they're for some inexplicable reason unable to see the right way to do or the right way to think, which of course I fortunately am able to see, <laughs> even despite that, something we share in our mortality is much more significant than our differences or our disagreements. We're out rubbing each other in a way that's uncomfortable. And so there's a, perhaps a, a space and a possibility for some letting go of our positions and our demands and sometimes our inflexibilities. Just bringing this contemplation to mind. It's something that invites and encourages also, I think, with a sense of of generosity, of sharing, of wanting to offer, wanting to give, wanting to... Because we realize, actually, that if we're not here forever, 
it's obviously it doesn't make sense to try and hold on to all the things and all the stuff that we've got. Why would we do that when we realise it's all going to be gone eventually? We can't, you know, we know you can't take it with you, but somehow we think, but I want to hang on to it as long as I can. You know, so much of the time we feel that way. And the prophet uh, Khalil Gibran writes, he says, "All that you have will one day be taken." He says. And goes on to say, give now so that the season of generosity will be yours rather than your inheritors. It's like the, the having of things is this opportunity for generosity. Seeing that we need to take that opportunity when we can. Something beautiful about that. Just simple things, but I think powerful, profound, and really supporting of an orientation of our heart towards a way of living that feels more meaningful, more respectful, more connected, and actually more fulfilling. There's a way in which it brings an end of our postponing of what's important, the complacency that kind of thinks that things are okay for now, so I just won't really attend to the things that are really important. Or maybe because it would be a bit complicated or difficult or challenging if I were to make changes that I know I want to cha- make and I will make. We ca- have you ever thought or felt yourself operating in that way? You know? When I was in my, I guess, early 20s, my closest friend from uh, school and growing up had a uh, minor surgical procedure that was routine and simple, apparently, supposedly meant to be at least, that went wrong. And he, as a result of it, his intestines started to die. And he, over six months, just slowly, that part of his body and ultimately the rest of him, um, disintegrated. And he eventually decided to, because his body couldn't function really, they were keeping him alive, but he had no quality of life left. He decided to turn off the machines and just go. And it was a real shock and impact, a deeply distressing period of time and process for me. I felt very bereft of his uh, friendship. And there was an incredible gift he gave me in it, because I was stuck at that time in a job. I was working in a high-powered professional office. Uh, I was uh, practicing as a barrister and solicitor at the time, and um, I was hating it, to be honest. I really did not want to be doing that. But I was also terrified by the prospect of leaving it and having no security or support behind me in terms of family or resources. Felt like this was the thing that kept me alive, so I better keep doing it for a while. And I'm not sure if Raider, that's what we used to call him, Raider, did I say that? He had big ears like this, they stuck out sideways. Um, If he hadn't died, I don't know if I'd have found the courage in myself to say, actually, I need to get out of here. I need to find something else. And it was an incredible gift that he gave me in that way. To say, okay, what I need to make changes in my life, I'm going to do it now. I'm not going to put it off until it's more easy or convenient or I'm sure it's going to work out in a comfortable way. And it wasn't all comfortable, I can assure you. still isn't sometimes. It's the nature of life. It isn't always comfortable. My... Jewish grandmother could never understand and I could never explain to her the fact that I'd given up being a lawyer. (laughs) 
And given how her life was, it makes absolute sense that she would have wished for me that kind of material financial security. But how would you live if you knew that today was the day, the last day of your life? How would you, what would you choose? What would you do? I remember a friend, uh, Shada, who didn't, she's certainly taught here over the years. I don't know if she does so regularly anymore, but certainly um, over in California. She, she was once uh, teaching at the retreat center I've mentioned, Guy House in England. And uh, she was reflecting on this and sort of uh, asking folk, you know, well, so what would you do if this was the, you know, the last days of your life? And one of the staff who'd just come from Australia actually realised, oh, actually, I'd want to be with my children back in Australia. So left and went back. And there was a suddenly big hole in the um, functioning of the organisation because this person had disappeared. <laughs> and there was this little bit like, you know, Shada, why did you do that? But at another level, that was actually what was right and important for that person. And sometimes we need to make those kind of choices. So at one level we could say that living is an invitation to prepare for dying well. That our practice is a support for understanding what will mean that when we come to that time we can pass through whatever that gateway is for us. However we conceive it or whatever we experience or don't experience in that, that we can actually come through that a sense of living well and dying well. In the end are not separate things. It's interesting that we kind of polarize those two realities, but they're actually not separate. Because it can arise at any moment, the sense of how we've lived our life is what we will be left with. And so we're really encouraged to give attention to some of the things we've spoken about here already, ethics. You know, to live in a way where we're not left with regret for things we've done. Not saying that we'll live perfectly, nobody does. But where we have perhaps made mistakes or caused harm, we can take time or find ways to say sorry or make amends if we're able. Or just acknowledge and allow ourselves to feel and know what we've learned from such things. And to commit ourselves as far as we can to say, so far as I'm able, I wish to live in a way that causes not harm to others or myself or this world. Because those are the things we'll know and we'll feel and we'll be in touch with when, when our time comes. And having a sense of living our life with a, an intention to be ongoingly completing it. Ongoingly completing what's important. That doesn't mean finishing it, but actually letting that which is important be dealt with and attended to, with people that we're close to, to let them know we care about them, or we forgive them. To actually say that, because we may not get a chance when the time comes, if we haven't done recently. For many years, consistently and reliably, when my wife Catherine and I would go in different directions, as we did quite regularly, we'd just take a moment and pause and just say, I hope I see you again. Because it was true. We did hope. And we still do. And we still remember to say that. Perhaps not quite so often. But there's something about just that acknowledging that it isn't guaranteed that I will see you again. And if it doesn't happen, 
I'd like you to know that I'll be sorry that happened, that we didn't get to see each other again. And I go every year to teach in Sweden now for about, I think about 18 years. And my Bengali grandmother lives there. She's, she's Indian, but she lives in Sweden because she married a Swedish man, my grandfather. And, um, and she's now 97. And every time I go back there, I think, and I've been thinking this for years, you know, will she be alive another year? And she still is, and she still is. And it's, and she, but there's something about the fact that, you know, I, I can't still say, oh, well, you know, she's been doing this for the last 12, 15 years. She's probably going to be there. No. So there's something for me incredibly sweet and poignant and tender and beautiful about just the, because I only go once a year. My year is pretty full, so I, I keep thinking I'd like to go and spend more time with her before she goes. She's a remarkable woman. But, oh. It's just that, just the, the letting myself know that I may not see her again adds something to the, the quality of the, the relatively brief time we have each year. And so it's a qualitative thing. It's not about the quantity. But the quality comes in contact with someone partly from the care and the love that may be there, but also from the knowing, the remembering, the recognizing, and the being honest with ourselves about the fact of death and its ultimate inevitability. And so then to live for what we have right now, not for an uncertain future that may never come to us. To see life in the light of death is to puncture the self-importance, the centrality we seem to feel around the sense of me being here. At one level, we feel its preciousness and how important it is, this existence. And at another level, we can feel just how tenuous, how ephemeral it is. And I, I spoke earlier in the retreat about that sense of you know, letting the world just get some practice at getting on without us. You know, It's like a retreat gives the world a chance to practice for how difficult but nonetheless doable it will be when we're just not there. You know? Something about seeing that at another level, you know, in 10, 50, 100 years, the number of people who remember us specifically will get less and less. And in 200 years, unless we happen to do something really remarkable, very, very few people will remember or think about us. And that's a flicker of time in the journey of this life, of this planet, of humanity and existence. So this interesting balance between the, the kind of the actually unnecessariness of our existence and at the same time the incredible preciousness of it, the incredible preciousness of it that is evident by the fact of its, its transience, its vulnerability, its ephemeral beauty. They come together. We see them together actually. They don't cancel each other out. And how do we wish to live? How do we wish to live knowing that's so? Knowing that we're surrounded by other beings for whom that's equally so. For whom their existence is transient and precious to them and to others or to ourselves. Stephen Levine, some of you may know or know of him as a Dharma teacher and someone who worked a lot in the realm of 
supporting the process of death and dying. He also wrote a book and a kind of a program entitled A Year to Live, which you may be familiar with, where one can take a year and say, okay, I'm going to live this life as if my, this year was my last year, and all the things I'll do as if it was going to end. And I think I've not followed the program, but I've known people who've done it, and a very powerful, beautiful process to go through, to see what that's like. In his book, he reflects on some of what com- has come out of his teaching and his exploration of this territory and um, his engagement with it. And he says, in the end, love was the only rational act of a lifetime. And I think it's such a lovely statement because we tend to think emotionality, love, tenderness, caring, and rationality are kind of different things. In our world, they kind of somehow get separated. And yet, actually, it's true. In the light of death, we see that love is the only thing that makes sense. Kindliness and care for others, for ourselves, for this world. Nothing else makes sense. Nothing else. And we're also invited to look. There's this reflection. So there's a number of themes or possibilities here that that the reflection, the contemplation of death brings us closer to, brings us in touch with. And it also, I think, what it evokes is a sense of curiosity, of interest, of perhaps fascination. Like, what is this then, this life that is so, it seems real, and then can just go, be gone, disappeared, as if it was never. And if one's ever had the opportunity to sit with or be with someone in the time of their dying, or after their death, and there's this, they're here, they're here. And then they're not. And it's just so obvious that although the body's here, at that point, still there, they are gone. Whatever it was that they were is not. At least not in the way we previously recognized at all. And it's just, what is that? What is that? To be really curious about our existence at all. That's a natural thing to arise it seems to me, out of the contemplation, the reflection on death, on mortality. Because what is it, in the end, that we get so concerned about, that we're afraid of, that we kind of sometimes resist engaging with or allowing to touch us deeply? It's not actually death as such, because we don't really know what that is. We just have ideas about it. It's our ideas that we kind of get worried by. And in fact, even sometimes it's not necessarily even death, as you know, as I think Woody Allen said, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> you know? And yet, oh yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? Death is the place or the orientation. When we turn to it, we see that there's a complete absence of a referent or a reference point for the sense of self, for the sense of me. Because there's no way we can really travel beyond that in any meaningful way. In our minds, in our conceiving, in our self-constructing, that's a hard boundary for us. And that's scary. It's scary. Even if we've contemplated at some level biologically, 
something in us quivers at the prospect of that, this biology coming to an end. Something in us holds back from the prospect of this biology coming to an end, let alone the psychology, the sense of, of me that arises in and with and through this body-mind process. In a certain way, all fear comes back to death, comes back to that. All fear, at some level, is not just traceable, but sometimes very evidently felt. If we, if we track into it, if we feel into it, if we look at what it actually is about, is the sense that somehow that which I fear will annihilate me. And death is that place in which me is not. Essentially, that's its definition. That's its definition. But in fact, the real danger is the living death that we can know when we live our life on autopilot, when life is simply an unconscious repetition of patterns that are habitual. You know, the Buddha said, he said, mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if already dead. Simply recycling of the old habitual patternings. If we don't make the effort to engage with them, to transform them, in a certain way, there's no life in that living. It's just something old playing out repetitively. And we actually know that. Well, I think we, we recognize that as, as a, a deep, deeply unsatisfactory element within that repetitive cyclic. And again, we call this samsara in the Dharma teachings. That just spinning round and round, driven by conditions and conditioning that has no freedom, no life, no aliveness. The only death we can actually engage with or confront is the here and now experience when we enter into the unknownness of the next moment. We can't engage with death beyond the conceptual level apart from that. And the concept is not it. It just is not it. We might have ideas about death and what it means or doesn't mean, what will it be or not be. And in a certain way they're all defences. They're all attempts to protect ourselves from this confrontation, this engagement, this entry into the unknowableness of life in its immediacy, in its intimacy and unstoppableness. We may hear from religious or scientific or various perspectives ideas that suggest uh, something goes on beyond life, whether we call it heaven, hell, or rebirth, or whatever. And it's just an idea. And other people will tell us, no, no, it just all comes to an end. Nothing after death. It's just an idea. Both of those ideas are simply attempts to put something in a place where we cannot put something. And they may give us some consolation. They may make us feel a bit more comfortable. But of course it depends on our relationship to life, doesn't it? We're kind of happy for it to come to an end and the fact that it's going to be nothing afterwards, that's a constellation. The idea it might continue sounds a bit problematic. <laughs> of course, if we're enjoying it, then the fact that it's going to stop sounds problematic and the fact that it might keep going sounds kind of good. And of course, 
We have moments when it's one and moments when it's the other for us. We can see sometimes a shimmering between, trying to find some place to handle this territory one way or the other. But the only way to authentically handle it, in a sense, if we can use that language, maybe handle is the wrong word, the only way to authentically engage with it is the dying into the present moment, the dying of past and future, which are stories that we hold on to for security, for a sense of locating ourself within the spectrum of continuity that we call apparent, constructed, and ultimately illusory continuity that we call the past and the future. When in fact this life is just happening right here. And it's only and only ever found right here. It's not easy to lose this sense, to actually allow ourselves to let it go. It touches something really deep in us. And this is part of the territory that we are asked to consciously, courageously and great-heartedly turn towards. And we know this at one level. Death evokes loss, evokes grief. We know about this. Having entered into life, into birth, there will be death. That is for sure. And sometimes I find it important to just let ourselves sit with that a little. It's also important to know the, the suchness of this. Yes, that's how it is. There's nothing that can be done in one level. But also to sit with how that lands in a human heart. And uh, I was recently... Um, reading of the story of a young boy, I think an early teenage boy in England, who somehow got his foot stuck in a railway track. Probably messing about, as young boys sometimes do. And his foot was stuck, he couldn't get it out. And a train, he had a train coming. He got on his cell phone and he rang his dad. He said, Dad, what you, help! Dad's on the phone. What's happening? I'm stuck on the train track. It's a train coming. Help! His dad was too far away to get there. I can't imagine that they hang up their phones. They just hold. What do you, what do you say? What do you do in that? The young boy was killed. Probably his dad was on the phone to him at that moment. And just sometimes just stopping and pausing with that. To not defend against what that maybe speaks to us. And some of us here will have known real loss in this realm. Certainly known of those who have had it, if it's not touched our own lives. And and what would we say in those places? Um, What would we want to say or do? I mean... Another story of a um, of a New Zealander who is a, 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 a very experienced climber who was a, in fact he'd made five successful summits of Everest and he was a guide and would lead people. His name was Rob Hall, and uh, in fact he'd climbed Everest more times than anyone who wasn't a Sherpa. And uh, on one occasion his expedition was caught in a storm, and he could have climbed down. He would have got down all right, but one or two of the p- 
party were weak and slow and so he stayed with one of them on the mountain. And uh, again, he was in telephone, radio telephone contact with his wife back in New Zealand, trapped up on the mountain. And for 30 hours he was there in the snow without a tent or a sleeping bag. The companion, his client, died. He was still there and he rang her. The last call he said to his wife, I love you. Sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry too much. And then he was gone. And I find just listening to, reflecting on these, I mean, in one way that's a very particular situation, in another way, it's not. You know, she said, his, his wife reported how she said, he sounded like Major Tom or something, you know, from David Bowie's Space Oddity, like he was just floating away. And she said, Rob and I, we'd talked about the impossibility of being rescued from the summit ridge, that's the Everest summit ridge, over 8,000 metres. As he had said, you might as well be on the moon. What I find, and there's something both deeply tender and poignant, but also somehow quite beautifully powerful about allowing that sense of being touched by what it is to lose those we love deeply, to lose, to be separated from, to allow that to touch us very deeply. Because it speaks to us of something that's fundamental to our life. Mary Oliver writes in her poem, the Bl In Blackwater Woods, she says, Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends upon it. And, when the time comes, to let it go. To let it go. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal. To hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends upon it. And when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. When I hear, when I read, when I reflect on these words in this, this territory, this realm of contemplating death, one feels that, that sense of loss, of letting go. And there can be a way in which we fear death, in which we avoid contemplating or turning to it. We try and tidy it up because it brings us into contact with that sense of loss, that sense of out-of-controlness. And although the urge can be to, t to turn away, 
to shy away, to defend against it, to try and sort of kind of somehow make an intellectual framework for relating to it through, rather than allowing it to be a, a very immediate, visceral, heartfelt experience. We shy away from it because something in us isn't quite sure that if we turn towards it, we can handle what it, that will involve. And yet it's so necessary that we do turn towards it because actually what that loss or that sense of loss or fear of loss covers over and represents is actually the deeper loss and the deepest loss perhaps we could say which is the loss of connection with the the fundamental essential nature of life with the fundamental the sacred dharma the truth of things the taking birth in unconsciousness, the losing, avidya, the Buddha spoke of, the blindness, avidya, to not see as the, the root of suffering ultimately, to not see, to take birth in unconsciousness. There's a loss, a deep loss which we grieve, and yet which is also the doorway, is also the portal. And an open invitation to the rediscovery of that which is most fundamentally true. And which is liberating. So death asks us to let go. Because one day everything will be taken. This is one of the daily reflections the Buddha invites us to contemplate that this body is subject to birth, to aging, to sickness, to death, that one day everything will be taken. To let go. To not hold on to anything. This is the fundamental practice instruction. This is the basis of freedom. As Ajahn Chah, who we've mentioned, much loved, Master from Thailand, as he said, let go a little and you will know a little peace. Let go a lot and you will know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you will know complete free, complete peace and natural freedom. And what letting go means here, fundamentally, is to not take the content and the material of experience as somehow definitive of what we are, and nor in any way to put or take a position that says what we are is apart from that. To define ourselves not by the inclusion or the exclusion of any field of experience, inner or outer. To not attempt to locate a position within the fluid medium of life, whose very fluidity is, we could say, the way we directly, moment by moment, experience what in one moment we will call death, but which is not actually separate from that fluidity, that ungraspability, that unfixity, that is neither still nor moving. neither coming nor going, neither this nor that, nor somewhere in between.
This is the invitation of our practice, to let go that deeply. To come to know for ourselves what the Buddha spoke of when he spoke of liberation, of realization, of the deathless. That is not something to be grasped, nor a a nothing to be negated or denied. Something to be known, to be realized in the human heart. When we don't take birth in experience by claiming it, by identifying with it, or by identifying somehow as other than it, when we don't take birth in experience, the truth of that condition is not subject to death. So I'd like to finish with a poem by a Native American elder, Red Hawk. He writes, The time comes when it is easier to die. We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold, the grey clouds move in low like a a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place, because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Your friends will die, or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you, or men will cease to be thrilled with you. And your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken, while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag full of bones. So it's not a trick, it's the art of what we're engaged in here. To find the gold before death finds you. And to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken. While death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight but only left holding a bag full of bones.
So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all in our practice and in our lives find the courage and the beauty of heart to live with honesty in the light of the fact that we will not be here forever. May our practice bring us ever closer to the, the full flowering of our human potential, to live with nobility and freedom in this world, to come to know for ourselves, as one of my teachers, Ajahn Suchito, once put it, he said to know beyond the sense of death and the sense of self, is the, the vastness of life, the mysterious vastness and the joy of life. May we all come to know this for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings. So please continue to make good use of this precious opportunity. Thank you for your practice and your presence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.